Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Thank you for downloading this podcast of New Books and Sports. I'm your host, Bruce Berglund. Each week, we choose an interesting new book on some area of sports, and we interview the author. My guest this week is longtime historian of cycling, Andrew Ritchie. We are discussing his new book on the sport's early decades, Quest for Speed, A History of Early Bicycle Racing, released by Cycle Publishing in 2011. One of the limitations of this podcast is that you can't see the book that we're talking about. And there are some instances when you really need to see the book in order to fully appreciate it. Certainly this is the case with Andrew Ritchie's new book on bicycle racing. In more than three decades of researching the history of cycling, Andrew has accumulated a huge collection of photographs and illustrations. Dozens of these pictures are reprinted in his book, Quest for Speed. As Andrew explains in the interview, bicycling and photography grew up side by side with each other in the late 19th century. As a result, the early history of cycling is well documented in photos. This provides a complete record of the changes in bicycle technology, high-wheel bicycles, three- and four-wheel cycles, and the bicycles with chain-driven wheels and inflatable tires that we're familiar with. But what was interesting for me as I read the book was the cumulative portrait of 19th century bicycle riders shown in the photographs. The images of young men and women posing proudly next to their bicycles, dressed in their riding gear, reminded me of the riders I see today and riders I know. One friend of mine, who is a bicycle racer, regularly posts loving portraits of his bicycles on Facebook. If you gave him some bushy sideburns and a high-wheel bike, he would fit right in with the riders pictured in this book. Andrew was himself a racer and a mechanic. We start the interview talking about his background in cycling in England and in California, and then what led him to start researching and writing about the history of the sport. Well, I've been riding a bike since I was 16, and uh, so I have pretty deep roots in the actual practice. Um, member of a South London cycling club, the Catford Cycling Club, and later on I, I time-trialed in England, I raced in France, I've been living in California now some time and raced again there, toured all over Europe. So about when I came to Berkeley first, um, I was working in a bike shop. My first job in California was wrenching and um, and looking around at what was available then in the in the history of cycling and bicycle technology. And there really wasn't very much. And that was the stimulus for my uh, my first book, which was King of the Road, an illustrated history of cycling. That was published 1975. That's, well, that book's still out there floating around. Um, it was generally recognized as fairly solid, um, you know, because there really hadn't been that much done in an academic sense um, in, in the history of the sport. So a key idea that you develop throughout your book is the connection of bicycling to the modernization of society and culture. So in, in what ways was bicycling, uh, in your view, the example of a modern sport? Uh, yeah, difficult question, long, long, complicated question. <laughs> um, I think that what I'm getting at in the book is the technological nature of the sport of cycling in other words the sport of cycle and i i argue in the book i think more or less throughout it's like a 
theme in in Quest for Speed that the the industry and the sport locked arms in the uh, in the ongoing development and evolution of the bicycle. In other words, there was a kind of constant inspection by the industry of what was going on in the racing and then the racing people were very much interested in what they could persuade the industry to do and what the industry was capable of doing the technological level Um, and in fact in a way what was happening already as early as the 1870s and certainly on into the 1880s in the high wheel period was like a like almost like a paradigm for what still exists in 2011-12 in the sense of this close interconnection between a race like the Tour de France and the bicycle manufacturers who are always looking for the the newest thing um, I mean here we have this remarkable fact that now we have 100% carbon fiber frames in the Tour de France. Now, new technology, new materials, steel is gone for racing high-tech racing purposes. So the, the, there's this interaction between the, the sport and the industry, which we can trace all the way back to the very beginnings of the sport. I mean, it sounds like a silly thing to say, almost a silly truism, but... Until you have a bicycle, you cannot have bicycle racing. And there's no other way that bicycle racing would come into existence other than through the existence of a bicycle. So we're looking at a, you know, a starting point for the whole development back into the, into the 1860s, essentially, although you can trace it back further than that into various kinds of three and four wheel velocipedes and of course back to the back to the hobby horse in the in the in the early 19th century so that's basically the the um the theme of the book is of press the speed is how the industry and the and the racing um interconnected and cross fertilized each other so that um as the machine developed um technologically and all kinds of new ideas and new designs were tried so those designs were always tested out in racing tested out and and um and evaluated in in competition so i'll follow up on that uh as you said you were both a racer and a mechanic uh i have a a former student who uh he was for a time a professional racer and now he's a mechanic so back in the 19th century how did racers and designers and manufacturers interact were they all pretty much the the same the same group well no i mean that gets into another deep and and complex part of the whole story because of course you have in england and to a lesser extent in America, but in England you have a quite stratified society. You have a you have a class society where you have working class people who work in the factories, and then you have a much more um, a, 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 an upper, not upper, but a higher up level of society. You know, your upper middle classes, you, who are though who are the people who are engaging in amateur sport. And there's this constant rift within the sport between the amateur element and the professional element. The professionals, and in fact, the the, um, the National Cyclists Union, um, as in the uh, the the, um, uh, the the leading bodies of other sports, the the you know the governing bodies of other sports, um, had a very definitely pro amateur. Stance, uh, they tended to look down on professionals and professionalism. Um, doing racing for money, competing for money, was considered a lesser form of sport than um, than competing for cups and prizes. And so, of course, this 
this resulted, this was the reason that the, um, the first Olympic Games were always, um, were always amateur and professionals were excluded. So, but nevertheless, the people who, uh, who were getting the most, um, who were closest to the industry were, of course, the people who were getting their machines from, from the industry. And so the, the industry is trying to infiltrate the amateur sport and, uh, in cycling and in other sports, but the, there's opposition from within the sport to the pr- presence of the, amateur, of the professionals. Um, who are thought by many to kind of degrade the sport. Um, so we have this bizarre um, thing in the, in the 1890s where you have a category of racer called a maker's amateur. Now a maker's amateur was somebody who could get into quite a lot of trouble if he, couldn't, he could be suspended or banned from the sport. Um, and in fact, there's a famous case of um, Arthur Zimmerman, the American rider who won the World first World Championship 1893. I write about this in Quest for Speed, um, who came to England as, a, as an amateur, a big winning amateur, and was declared a professional by the National Cyclists Union um, because he was riding, he had accepted money um, and bicycles was alleged to have accepted money. He had definitely accepted bicycles from the Rally Bicycle Company. And if you accept uh, free bicycles as an amateur, that, in effect, in the eyes of the National Cyclists Union, would have con- would have turned you into a professional. So there was a, throughout the 1890s. There's this dialogue going on within the clubs and within the industry. This dialogue and this tension between amateurism and professionalism, which of course now, today, in the days of um, open sport, uh, has, has significantly um, de- declined as, a, as an issue. So related to this uh, connection of design and manufacture and racing, uh, I'd like you to to explain to us the development of early bicycles. And I imagine that when most people, myself included, think of 19th century cycling, what comes to mind first are the high wheel bicycles. So can you tell us, and, and but these weren't the first, first kinds of bicycles used for racing. So can you tell us uh, how and when did these develop and why were they preferred among racers? Well, <laughs> the best way of understanding the development of of the technology from 1870 onwards is to have an illustrated book with pictures of the relevant machines and that's one of the things that I did struggle for both in well in all my books I've struggled for good illustrations and uh, because it helps enormously to understand the problem of the the technological development to see the photographs and the incidentally cycling is a sport extraordinarily well covered in photographs um so from 1870 onwards you have very very good photo documentation of the machines and the sport itself but um yeah so from the late 1860s you have what's usually referred to as the bone shake of velocipede which is front wheel driven, front wheel slightly bigger than the back wheel. Um, and these were pretty heavy wooden, uh, steel rimmed, no, not, not at the beginning rub, a rubber tire, although a rubber tire was, was soon used, not, not pneumatic, of course. Um, fast pedaling rate, ridden indoors and outdoors, significant amount of racing, some of that racing was much more like indoor circus entertainment than um, than racing the kind of racing we know today. Yet, nevertheless, cycling has a significant history as an indoor sport, of course, on the velodromes. So um, then uh, developing from that, you have a gradual enlargement of the of the front wheel in order to gain 
a little slower pedaling rate and a faster speed covering more ground with each rotation. And that leads to the kind of classic high wheel period, which lasts, you know, um, mid-1870s to late 1880s. Um, then I don't know how how much detail you'd like me to go into here because it's uh, it's a quite a complicated story. Um, well, let me ask you as, first: have, have, have you ridden a high wheel bicycle? I have, but I ride badly. I'm not very confident. <laughs> so what does it but, so what does it do? Is in terms of uh, what advantage do you gain with a high wheel bicycle? As a racer, well, you're you're kind of you have a big wheel, so you're kind of floating over the bumps. It's a very um, it's generally reported as a very gentle, quiet ride. Um, but of course, it's a high wheel bicycle is not a great hill climber because of the position on the bike, um, and it's not good for carrying luggage. Um, it's dangerous if you hit a an obstruction. Um, headers were frequent. Uh, the racing was very pure in a sense because these were very, very experienced riders um, who weren't, were less likely to crash than you know you had. You don't have so many obstructions on the on the track on a on a good track as you do on the road. So they were very they were very highly skilled riders um, and. You know, neck and neck high wheel racing in the in the 1880s was a was a high tech sport. I mean, there was nothing sort of sentimental and sweet and misty about high wheel. You know, the image of the high wheel bicycle is that it's a sort of um, you know quaint, folksy thing. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, far far from it. For racing purposes, uh, a high tech machine. Every aspect of the machine is being looked at. Um, to for improvement, lighter weight, more efficiency, ball bearings, um, uh, better better solid rubber tires, um, uh, stronger backbone. Um, all all of the later aspects of bicycle technology that are going to emerge in the big boom of the 1890s um are being the ground is being laid for all these developments in the factories in you know Coventry, Birmingham, London, Liverpool, uh, Chicago, Boston, Milwaukee, you know, wherever the manufacturing is go, going on. It's a very a very intense industry kind of closely related to Oh, the production of the sewing machine um, uh, of of guns, any uh, closely related to any industry that demands uh, high quality machine tools, which of course the Americans had a worldwide reputation for um, machine tools, and in which with which you can produce many many uh, copies of of um, interchangeable parts. So that's the key to mass production of the bicycle is the movement from a kind of uh, blacksmith level technology right at the beginnings of the bicycle to a much more systematized mass production um, level, uh, and which you have by the by the end of the well for the bicycle by the mid 1880s. Um, you have this in a company like the Pope Manufacturing Company, for instance, or the the big English manufacturers. Um, but alongside the development of the high wheel bicycle, you also have the emergence of many different kinds of tricycles and quadricycles, so three and four wheeled machines. Now, one of the things that's crucially happening in the 1880s is the emergence of a chain technology. Up until you had the tricycles and quadricycles, um, which were safer. Once again, pictures really helped to understand this whole development. But they needed chain technology and they needed differentials for multi-wheel machines. And so there's a kind of big expansion of interest in 
producing a good chain and in uh, geared differentials and drive systems of various kinds. Um, actually, what's being done there, if you look forward from that point, is the foundations are being laid in that decade for the beginnings of the automobile and aviation industries, amazingly enough. I mean, later on in the history of the bicycle, you have a wholesale movement of skilled manpower as the bicycle industry declines in the later 1890s. You have this movement of all this expertise through into motorcycles, early automobiles, com internal combustion engine, and then, of course, the Wright brothers were, were bicycle mechanics. So actually, this is a subject that really needs a, a good book to be done on this, this te technology transfer into the emerging industries at the turn of the century. I'm not going to do it, though. <laughs> and, uh, we're not, and we're not going to cover it here. So let's stick with, with bicycles, and you were hinting at this yeah, earlier. Yeah. So, uh, I mean, if, if, if you go on from the end of the 1880s, the, because of the danger of the high-wheel bicycle and because of the fact that it was inaccessible to women, it was inaccessible as a, a really practical kind of daily riding. It was a sporty thing. It was a club activity, riding a high-wheel bicycle. It was a, it was a young man's sport, um, both in the sense of the racing aspect and also the, the uh, recreational club riding aspect. What, what was needed all, all through that decade was something safer, something more accessible to a wider variety, a wider group of people. And so thus the, the search for what was called the safety bicycle, the bicycle as we know it today, two wheels steered, driven to the rear wheel by a chain. And hence the, the need for the development of that chain technology in the later 1880s. So um, safety bicycle comes in with um, with, with uh, Starley in, um, in England in the 1885, 1886, develops very rapidly. Um, and many, many different varieties of safety bicycle are tried and produced. And then very, very soon after the safety bicycle starts really taking off, um, the pneumatic tire is introduced and that ups the tempo of the of the safety revolution in the early years of the 1890s. So, I mean, by 1891-92, essentially the solid tire is defunct, is dead and gone to all practical purposes. It's a very, very sudden, a very quick um, emergence of a of a of pneumatic tire technology that really. It changes, uh, it changes the sport, and it also changes bicycle production, and, and it allows bicycles to uh, be much more practical for, you know, uh, functional, utilitarian, transportational purposes. So you mentioned earlier some of the, the sites of, of bicycle manufacturing in the United States as well as in, in England, and throughout the book you look at racing in Britain, in France, in the United States. And so I'll ask you, did you find, were there differences in cycling culture uh, among these different countries in the 19th century? Definitely, yes. Um, and I think that, that, that a close reading of the book will, will come up with many examples of that. Um, I mean, the... The American sport and the industry right at its beginnings in the late 1870s, because the Brits were a little bit ahead through the through the 70, the mid 70s period. Um, but they, the, the the Americans, particularly on in Boston and New York and on the East Coast, took a lot of their um, the, the cultural sort of club life and the um, and the, the, the way they 
thought about the, the high wheel bicycle. They they took a lot of that from England, um, and uh, I think the American sport developed its own you know its own um, its own uh, direction. Um, but it was very it was very much tied to a, a club scene um, that was very similar to the to the British club scene. Um, and those clubs, of course, in, in America, they spread all over the country really quite quickly. I mean, there was a, there was a club in San Francisco, for instance, um, almost as soon as there was a club in, in Boston, quite remarkable. Um, and, uh, which indicates, you know, how quickly, uh, uh, machines and ideas were, were being communicated. Um, the French were always a little bit different. Um, they 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 had a, a club institute, in, you know, a lot of club institutions too. Um, they were a little slower than um, than the Brits in developing the the early bicycles, um, but there was always much less problem in France worrying about distinctions between amateur and professional they were never um they were never afraid to get paid or to get paid in cash um and so as the sport developed in france particularly the 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 road racing the early road racing there was much less resistance to um the sport becoming a professional sport um, and they preferred to categorize the the racers in terms of experience rather than in terms of sort of sort of social classification um, so for instance you had um, you know a, a sort of elite level of experienced riders and then you had a, an intermediate and then you had a sort of a beginners level and but they could all get they could all get paid to do it, um, and the, the, and the one and once again, this caused problems between France and England because if you were a, an English amateur, you wanted to compete in France. Um, it was a bit risky because when you got back home, the National Cyclist Union could tell could say, "Are oh, you been competing against professionals?" And therefore, your amateur status is a little bit um, in question. This could this could cause serious problems for people within the sport. So when did uh, international competitions begin? Was it, was it common that you'd have uh, racers from England going to France to compete and vice there, versa? There was, a, there was a lot of international competition, even in the very earliest days. Um, and I, I do spend quite a bit of time looking into this in the book. Um, the first formal, properly recognized uh, world championships were on the track were 1893. And that's the International Cyclists Association had been created in 1892. So that was formally constituted as the first world governing body of cycling. Uh, actually, Henry Sturmey, who was at that time I think the really the most important figure within the National Cyclists Union was one of the uh, really one of the brokers of that agreement. Um, they had a hard time getting the French on board because of the amateur professional um, problem, and um, that the um, the Brits and Americans and Germans and Dutch and Danish and many others. Um, got on board with the International Cyclist Association, um, which later on, of course, after the turn of the century, took on a much more French, um, uh, a French direction. Uh, but, um, yeah, so, but before the creation of that world body and the first formal championships, there had been a lot of interchange. Um, American riders came to Britain, British riders went to America, uh, French and British riders could uh, ride um, in each other's countries 
as long as they were um, able to overcome this amateur professional thing, you know. Um, yeah, there was a lot of uh, there was a lot of interchange, and in fact, that that's one of the parts of the history of the sport that hasn't really been very well covered to date. The recognition that this international level of competition. Um, was going on back into the high wheel era into the 1880s yeah definitely definitely an important aspect of the history yes it struck me while reading the book that this seemed to be the uh the beginnings of a transatlantic sporting culture which is uh you know familiar to us today yes and in fact that that also existed um from an earlier period in running what they referred to then as pedestrianism because it was walking and running there were quite a few uh, high level well publicized exchanges between um, british and american walkers and runners in 1860s 1870s um, and uh, then one of the chapters in the book is about uh, british racer and promoter harry etherington who was one of the first people to go to America and um, partly, I think, to try to publicize and sell English bicycles. But he traveled around and took on the American riders and received a lot of publicity. Um, that was in the, in the, um, in the uh, mid-1880s, early mid-1880s. So, yeah, this, this was definitely... Um, this international exchange was definitely happening then. So I want to ask about the people who were involved in in early cycling. And, and first I have a question about cyclists in general. As I was looking at the, the many photographs that you have in the book, so you have many portraits of young men with their bicycles and their racing clothes. I was thinking of contemporary cyclists who are really a, a as as you certainly know, are, are something of a distinct subculture. And I was thinking that today it, it's something of a hip job to be a bicycle mechanic. And I was wondering about these early cyclists and, and mechanics. Were they in some way countercultural? Did they, did they take pride in the fact that they were uh, part of this, this daring, innovative activity? Uh, hard question to answer. Um, I, I think that the the activity as a as a sport, as a recreation, has always had a, a a little bit of a distinct kind of cultural, physical, uh, you know, idiosyncratic um, character. A bit rebellious, maybe. Mm-hmm. Um, I know in in my case it it was uh, not approved of by my family. Um, it wasn't part of the of the plan. Um, it was in England, growing up in the sixties. It was a working class sport, distinctly working class sport. Um, that was perhaps at that time um, creeping up uh, for the sake of, a, of you know lack of a better description the, 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 the social scale in other words it was it was infiltrating from the working class up into the, the middle middle classes um, but I mean you looking into the history of cycling in the 20s and 30s, where you had a lot of club riding and you had a lot of um, weekend house parties and youth hosteling activities and summer touring. And these people didn't have any money. The, the bicycle was their, was their way of earning, earning their, their freedom, of having their, having their holidays away from home on the road. And there's some of these wonderful pictures of uh, people on tandems with little sidecars and children on the back. I mean, this is a this is a part of the culture that is now now gone. Um, and I think when we look at the sport 
from uh, our present day vantage point, um, it's become much more um, cross-class based. Um, although in England, I think it would probably be true to say that it's still predominantly uh, a, 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 a working class sport. Um, I haven't lived in England for, you know, recently. Um, so I don't have sort of um, such a keen sense of that. Certainly in California, um, cycling has become a, a totally uh, classless uh, activity, I think. Uh, the new people who are coming into the sport um, are coming from everywhere. It's hard to, I think, cat categorize them. Um, then it's been, there's been a tremendous growth of the sport, you know, in the last 20 years and this ex extraordinary emergence of the, the new bicycle, in, the American bicycle industry, you know, with companies like Trek and Cannondale and Specialized and uh, Lightspeed Pedals and all these newly, um, and of course the mountain bike people. So the, the sport in America, I mean, during the time I've been here, the sport has expanded to an extraordinary extent. Um, when I first came to Northern California, to Berkeley, we, the club riders, were... We were the only people on, you know, who dressed up in, in like cyclists, and they were not a large number of those people. You could, you practically knew all the people who rode in your area. Um, now, it's, um, yeah. So, I mean, you asked me initially about whether, whether historically there's a kind of uh, counter-cultural aspect to cycling. Um, it, within the industry, it's, let's say, the people who manufactured and made the high-wheel bicycle. I, I would think those people would have seen themselves primarily as workers, mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. they, mm -hmm. were, they were machinists. They were workers. Um, but how they saw themselves when they went out at the weekend with their, with their clubs... Um, I think would have depended very much on their kind of class orientation. Uh, some of the clubs were very respectable and had uniforms, and you know they demanded a very uh, a, a very respectable level of uh, behaviour mm -hmm. on the road. One of the things that um, I, d I don't know whether you had this as a question, but it just springs to mind: um, the question of road racing. Um, is a very it's an important part of of quest for speed and occupying i think most of one or two chapters and um, of course cycling has two aspects in a track where people pay money to go in to watch the racing and the racing can be controlled because it's within a within an arena road racing something a little bit different because it takes place place in public space and um, therefore the, the racing or the rec well the, the, the racing activity if it's a formal race must necessarily coincide with other people who are on the road at the same time and in England particularly you know a small country uh, crowded roads crowded cities uh, the presence of these uh, these racers on the road, groups of people, was not was really looked down upon and, and caused a great deal of trouble in the particularly in the 1890s as the sport you know expanded um, to such an extent that the National Cyclist Union and the uh, the League of American Wheelmen in America. Um, they had a problem on their hands because if they annoyed general members of the public with their racing activities, then it affected other aspects of what they could and couldn't do on the public roads. 
So the National Cyclists Union, for instance, fought a ferocious battle within the committees, um, literally to ban road racing from public roads. And this, of course, in England led to the uh, trialing culture, the early Sunday morning uh, racing on public roads when everybody else was tucked away in bed. And they, um, you know, they wore dark clothing. They didn't advertise their presence at all, but they got to race. And they would be up at crack of dawn and they'd race and then they'd be home having breakfast by nine o'clock on a Sunday morning. Um, and that was one of the ways in which uh, British racing took on a very distinctive identity. Um, and um, But it held back. Uh, mass start road racing on in in a way that was not true in of course in France or or Belgium, France, Belgium, Holland, um, Germany, uh, but particularly France and Belgium, of course, where you know road racing took off in the 1890s and laid the foundations for for the for the the fact that cycling is really national the national sport in those two countries. So following up on that, uh, I was going to ask about how was cycling viewed in the broader culture at the time? So you were talking about this uh, um, conflict over over road racing in, in Britain and the United States. Uh, but at the same time, cycling was quite prominent in, in the popular media, correct? And, uh, and the races, the track races, drew... Uh, a lot of spectators. Well, huge, yes. I mean, particularly through the 1880s high wheel period into the into the 1890s, and you could say that, you know, that that 90s period of the bike boom um, to all, up towards the end of the 1890s, when there seems to be really a an, an, an almost universal falling off. Of the of the interest in racing, although it was still high in London and Paris and Berlin and the big the big cities, um, but the, yeah, it was a huge spectator sport in the in the mid 1890s. I mean, it was it was as popular and attracted as much financial activity, I think, although it's very hard to measure. Um, as as much as any other sport that existed at that moment. I mean, they certainly were, um, the bicycle tracks were taking in uh, the same number of spectators as the, as the baseball tracks, uh, the baseball fields. Um, and of course, there was as yet very, the, the football at that stage um, in America was basically a, a college activity still, and there was no, there were no professional teams as yet. Um, so, yeah, it was. Um, I mean, when you follow the career of somebody like uh, like Major Taylor, you know, who I wrote the other book about, and you see Taylor as an interesting example of a, uh, well, more than an interesting, uh, a, a, uh, an African American who's really the only. African American who's entering American cycling and international world cycling at that level, um, and you see the the number of professional riders there were. I mean, there were hundreds of professional riders in America. You know, fewer, fewer in England. Uh, lots in France, of course. But the sport was the sport was a major attraction. And, and and also cycling as a recreational and a fashion and a utility activity um, was widely um, reported in in the daily press. And many of the many of the newspapers, you know, had a um, had a cycling page or at least a cycling column where they would comment on various aspects, social aspects of cycling and. You know the whole question of uh, whether women should or should not do it, and if they were going to do it, how should women dress? It it, it became a, a a crucial part of the um, of the em- emancipation of women and uh, their 
you know, their quest for a more more equal treatment in in society and to wear what clothing they they wanted to wear that was that was commensurate with 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 comfort and and respectability on on the bike. So I want to ask you about a couple important figures from the, from the early history of cycling, and and one of these is Arthur Zimmerman. Can you uh, talk briefly about yeah. his his role in cycling? I've I've done a little biography of Zimmerman. Um, Zimmerman was interesting because he was uh, he came up very quickly into the American sport. He was riding high wheeler. Actually, he rode a a bicycle called a star, which is a kind of reversed high wheeler with a small wheel at the front and the and the rear wheel driven by a kind of up and down motion with um with treadles. Anyway, um he he uh, started winning big as an amateur. He went to England as an amateur, he entered the National Cyclists Union uh track championships at different four different distances and came away with three of them um and uh then he went back he also uh he went back to the states and he came back the following year and then that's where when he was declared a professional by the national cyclist union for accepting bicycles from the rally bicycle company and uh, Americans, of course, were completely um, di- disgusted by the high-handed behavior of the National Cyclist Union, and they said, oh, the only reason they're doing that is because Zimmerman, as an American, won three of their championships. Now they want to prevent him from doing that again. Um, but anyway, the, the, so Zimmerman became a conspicuous example of the maker's amateur problem. Um, and in fact turned pro formally uh, the same season and then he came back to Europe 1894 and raced in France and he 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 was really the first cyclist who was whose career was in, internationally reported in America England and France and the object of great interest so if you like he became, because of the, um, the attention from the media, he became an example of a kind of modern sports hero. And the funny thing was about Zimmerman was that he he didn't he didn't really have very much to say to the media. He was sort of retiring type who liked to keep himself to himself, apparently. Um, and so you had you had this odd juxtaposition of hero status, but a very modest retiring gentleman kind of on the on the inside, you know. So they were they they didn't quite know what to make of him. And then he's got oh he went to Australia too, and then suddenly he's just gone from the sport. He retires, and basically they talk about him in the press, um, but he never comes back to a high level of 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 competition or performance. And the other person I want to ask about is uh, whom you've already mentioned is Major Taylor, whom you've uh, written a biography of. Yeah, well, Major Taylor is really a a unique case um, in the history because of his race, because of his color, because of the struggle he had to be even allowed to enter the sport. Um, so he comes up in um, rural Indianapolis. He he's encouraged by uh, a mentor, Bertie Munger. Works in bike shops. He he himself became a machinist. By the age of sixteen, he's being talked of as the colored champion of America, as winning big races. Uh, turns professional 1896 when he's 18 years old. Uh, from 1896 to 1904, he races, competes internationally, absolutely, absolutely non-stop. 
um, world champion 1899, uh, breaks world records on the track behind pace in America, encounters ferocious opposition, including physical physical attacks on the tracks from white riders who don't like being beaten by a black man. Um, it's it's absolutely an epic story of um, a, a, a sports a cycling career. Um, goes to Paris 1901 um, to meet the as reigning uh, world sprint champion from 1899. He goes to Paris to beat the reigning world sprint champion of 1900, Edmund Jacqueline, a Frenchman. And their races in Paris in 1901 are reported as the most heavily attended sporting event ever encountered, ever organized in Paris. Um, and Major Taylor is, is literally the, the toast of the town that year. Um, his, his presence is courted by... Uh, by Parisian society, and uh, his, his every move he makes is covered in the press. It's an, an extraordinary story. Um, so he goes on to have uh, a total of six seasons in Europe, and goes to Australia twice. Um, there was no other rider who attracted as much attention as he did or made as much money as he made i mean for for that for that period um 1899 to 1904 uh you can say that major taylor was consistently one of the best three or four sprinters and also one of the best three or four box office attractions. Um, and, and, you know, that's when he raced, the, the, gate, went, the gate went way up. Because even in America, where there was likely to be fouling and cheating, and that the crowd liked to support and encourage the the underdog they saw him as being the underdog i mean it was such a statement of of uh, it was such a strong social and racial public statement when major taylor won um against white white riders so what are you working on now i'm working on I'm working on selling my book, actually. <laughs> um, and um, well, I have a I have another project that's um, that's going on, but I, I I I won't I won't start talking about it because it's sort of in uh, early early stages. Um, I, I tell you what I really would like, what I am also working on, and what I would really really like to see happening is uh, the movie uh, on Major Taylor which has been talked about for a long time now. Um, we, are, we, we, we sold an option to the, um, to, to the, to the book, and the, um, the, 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 the project has advanced a long way, but the funding is still not there. Mm -hmm. And I really want this movie to happen because I think that Major Taylor deserves to be recognized for the, for the person he was. Um, as I say, it, it, was, it was an extraordinary story. Of, um, and for a long time, he, his, his career, his life and career was really um, pretty much forgotten, except among a handful of historians of cycling and, you know, American bicycle racing enthusiasts. And now, you know, we have, we have the Major Taylor Velodrome in Indianapolis. We have a splendid statue to Major Taylor that was 
put up outside the public library in Worcester, Massachusetts, and Lynn Tolman of the Major Taylor Association was presided over the fundraising for that. It's splendid, splendid statue. The opening was attended by um, by Greg LeMond and and um, um, what's his name, the 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 famous uh, Olympic hurdler, um, Edwin Moses. Edwin Moses, yeah, yeah, and. Um, Thanks for remembering that. <laughs> and, uh, you know, now the extraordinary thing is there are these major Taylor cycling clubs springing up all over all over the states, um, pre- predominantly, you know, with black membership and um, with a sort of taking on the, the, the mantle of, um, of Major Taylor um, and, and, you know, memorializing him and taking his life and activities into the into the present and that's really there's even a national brotherhood of cyclists which is a a a black um the kind of federation of these black cycling clubs which has come into existence so uh yeah you know i think i think um i'm i'm happy to say that i think uh, major taylor is uh is better remembered now than he was in the past yeah yeah yeah, and and thanks to you for that in in researching and writing his life. Yeah, it was a it, well, it was not easy. Um, the 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 project sat in a box under my for almost ten years before I got it going. So <laughs> I think we, yeah, I, I think many of us can uh, <laughs> sympathize with that with with boxes under the bed for for several years. So um, yeah. So one of the most impressive parts of the book, and, and it is really a, a handsome book to look at, are all the photographs that you've acquired over the years. And, and you mentioned earlier that uh, um, bicycling is one sport that was documented visually uh, right yeah. from its early history. And I want to ask you something related to that. You don't, you don't discuss it in the book, but when you look at those photographs, what do they demonstrate about the, the origins and early history of sports photography? Oh, I could talk for an hour on that question. Um, <laughs> that's it, your next. There's because, your next book. Because, well, yeah. In, in in many ways, what happens is that because photography is just coming into its own in the studios in 1860s, 1870s. In a way you can tell the whole history of cycling through the processes of photography as they evolve and emerge. And um, through, you know, the the cut of the small studio photographs up into the era of people carrying around the first portable Kodaks and um, and then um, the, the, the first real sport photography i mean the the uh, there's a man called Jules Beau who was uh, who i whose archives are in paris and i found that he had photographed major taylor a lot um and and, and managed to get um uh quite a lot of those photographs um printed out and was able to use them in the major taylor book so yeah, I mean, the thing was, maybe this is the point to make here, that as the bicycle became more and more an object of everyday life, particularly up into the 1890s, you know, where it, through the bike boom, um, it, the, the photographs, both in the studio photographs of the high wheel period, 1880s, and the more loose kind of... Um, much more common snapshot-type pictures up in the 1890s, um, the, the, the bicycle is something that people pose with to demonstrate their uh, pride of possession. And this is very, it's very evident. You know, you see the same thing in snapshots from uh, that all of us have in our background, you know, the kids with the family car and mum and dad, you know, posing in front of the car, and they they are doing exactly the same thing with, um, with with bicycles, 
Um, the, the, the funny thing is that when, um, in the old days, a high-wheel bicycle photograph was considered something rather, rather you know, special and rather expensive, but since the days of um, eBay and being able to see all this stuff coming onto the market, you know, you realize much more how generic many of these photographs were that people went into the studio to have their photograph taken with the, with the bicycle. But long and short of it is that, you know, it's kind of like a, a parallel development of bicycle technology and, 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 and also an evolution of photographic technology. Um, so, but you can, you can look at um, both of them and ask lots of questions about the, you know, various impacts that uh, the, the development of technology has as, as, as things change and progress. Whew, that was a long sentence. <laughs> <laughs> You've been listening to an interview with Andrew Ritchie about his book, Quest for Speed, A History of Early Bicycle Riding, published in 2011 by Cycle Publishing. New Books and Sports is part of the New Books Network, which offers dozens of channels of podcast interviews with the authors of new publications on subjects from religion to language. Please friend New Books and Sports on Facebook and follow us on Twitter, where you can give us feedback and find daily links to quality, shorter sports writing. I'm your host, Bruce Berglund. Thanks for listening, and enjoy your week. <laughs>